This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 23, Exodus chapters 33 through 36. So at the end of chapter 32, even though promising to blot out only the sinners, God plagues the people anyway because of the calf that Aharon made. You hear that? The calf that Aharon made. But chapter 33 begins as if all is forgiven, because God is giving marching orders to the promised land with word of all the people he will drive out of Canaan. But there's still lingering rancor as God then informs the Jews by way of Moshe that he, God, will not go with them because, quote, for a hard-necked people are you, lest I destroy you on the way. We've all been on road trips like that. I completely relate. So the Jews, quote, strip themselves of their ornaments from Mount Sinai on to show that they are serious about repentance and respect, and the text goes on to describe what the people would do each time Moshe went to speak to God in the tent of appointment, which, for symbolic reasons, Moshe pitched outside the encampment. So when Moshe speaks to God, he wheedles and cajoles and finally secures God's agreement to accompany the Jews throughout the journey, at which point Moshe says, quote, pray, let me see your glory. At which point, some folks would hit play on side two of Dark Side of the Moon. God explains how Moshe will see God's glorious presence involving hiding in a rock cleft, God's hand covering Moshe's face until he passes, exposing his back but not the front because, quote, my face shall not be seen. Chapter 34 recounts the re-tableting of God's laws where Moshe prepares two more tablets and ascends Mount Sinai to receive the law again. This time God explains what will happen at the end of the desert journey. Dispossession of the Canaanites and the rest of the locals, the uprooting of their holy sites, the establishment of the pilgrimage festivals of Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, and the ban of boiling a kid in its mother's milk. Moshe remains up on the mountaintop for 40 days, and when he descends this time, Moshe's face radiates a light so bright that he has to veil his face when speaking to the people. He proceeds to lay down the law in chapters 35 and 36 about Shabbat and detailed plans for the construction of the dwelling under the guidance of Bitzalel and Aholiav. There is more talk about raised contributions, the donations of the people, and the very detailed specifics about the work that's needed to be done to get the dwelling up and running. So there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. talk about a rather obscure commandment that has now popped up for the second time in Exodus, and though seemingly obscure, has tremendous ramifications for the everyday life of traditional Jews. I'm referring to the commandment not to boil a kid in its mother's milk. And when I say kid, I'm not referring to a child. And when I say boiled in mother's milk, I'm not referring to some satanic cannibal cult initiation rite where a child is boiled in a vat filled with its mother's breast milk. I'm talking about a kid. A little goat, one that my father can buy for two zuzim around Pesach time, and a pot filled with its mother's goat milk. Eat and stir. Each time, this prohibition comes up in a rather odd context. In the first instance, in Exodus 23, God has Moshe instruct the Jews that all males must make a pilgrimage, quote, before the presence of the Lord. 
There are some additional regulations about blood offerings and festive offerings, as well as the injunction to bring the firstlings of your soil. And then, bam, verse 19, second clause, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. The subsequent verse deals with the treatment of prophets. In Exodus 34, the story is the same. Pilgrimage festivals, yada, 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 blood offerings, pilgrimage offerings, first fruits, and then bam, verse 26, second clause. Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. The subsequent verse moves on to a secretarial matter of Moshe taking God's memo. In Deuteronomy 14, there is some context, a discussion of what is permissible and not permissible to eat. The discussion about kid boiling comes in at the same verse as the prohibition to eat carcasses. Which reminds me of a joke. You've probably heard it before. It's a classic. So, Moshe is up on Mount Sinai, and God is dictating the text of the Torah to him, and they come across the verse, Do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And Moshe looks up and says, By this I assume you mean we should not eat meat and milk dishes at the same time. No, replies God. I simply said, Do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Yeah, fine, says Moshe. So you mean we should have separate dishes for meat and milk? No, says God. I simply said, Do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Got it, got it, got it, says Moshe. So, so you mean we should wait six hours after meat before we can eat milk? Okay, Moshe, God says with a sigh, have it your way. So in episode 20, I talked about this odd shift to the chumrah or stringency in Jewish religious practice in the last like 30, 30, 40 years. And nowhere is this shift more pronounced than with dietary practice and the awarding of a heksher certificate, which for some Israeli businesses could spell success or disaster. But as this joke attests, what is the connection between kid boiling and, say, separate dishes? Or this from the 2001 film The Believer. You guys know what you want? We sure do. <laughs> Could I get a, a ham and cheese? A white? We don't serve ham. We don't serve cheese. Well, they serve white. What the, fuck, what the fuck do you serve? Well, that's why you have the menus. Cairo roast beef with Swiss. We don't serve cheese. What's wrong with cheese? This is a kosher restaurant, all right? We don't serve meat with dairy. What about with chicken? Chicken's <laughs> meat. It says in the Bible, you don't see the kid in its mother's milk, but chickens don't give milk. All right, you guys want cheese that badly. There's a pizza place right next door. You can go there. OK. It's stupid, though, right? I mean, admit that it's stupid. Give him milk a chicken. <laughs> no, I want to admit it's stupid. You can have chicken with eggs, but you can't have it with milk? Why is that? Steve. Uh -oh. Maybe Steve can explain it. Hi, Steve. Steve, go over here. You can explain this to us. Stevie boy. Stevie got a stick. No, no, no. Let's ask him. Hey. Got a problem here? We sure fucking do, bitch. We don't understand why you can't have chicken with milk. It doesn't make sense. Religion's not about making sense. It's about the incomprehensible, Steve. Not the idiotic. <laughs> Fuck you. Fuck you. That explains it. Now we understand. What's your fucking... Uh, Danny Balance, Jew as skinhead provocation aside, the question is still a valid one. Steve didn't explain it, and nor did Danny. What sense do we make for, for how we get from there, kid boiling, to here? No chicken parmesan. And perplexity on this matter has history. Philo of Alexandria, we've talked about him before in episode 20. He was a Jewish philosopher at the turn of the first millennia. He states that kid boiling is forbidden because it mixes the stuff of life, breast milk, with death. 
and that this separation, along with other key separations, is necessary to preserve the integrity of categories and order in the world. So Jews are not to mix with pagans, nor are species of plants to be sewed together or the blending of wool and flax. And there are dozens of other examples of separations. You can check out the Havdalah blessings at the end of Shabbat. It demarcates other essential separations as well. Though light on context, this explanation accounts poetically for rationale, but it does little to explain why I can't have a lovely chicken parmesan sandwich. Maimonides, the medieval Sephardic philosopher, we talked about him before too, in his Guide to the Perplexed, guesses that kid boiling was an ancient pagan harvest custom that the Israelites were forbidden to imitate. And though a recent tablet discovered in Ras Shamra in Syria supposedly supports this assertion and has since been debunked, but no matter, had this explanation held, it would account for context, but it too does not account for the ban on buffalo chicken cheese balls. Nope. What explains how we got from point A, kid boiling, to point B, no butter chicken, is an altogether different matter. It's the concept of making a fence around the Torah. The source for this principle is Pirkei Avot, which is often rendered in English as the ethics of the fathers or the chapters of the fathers, although it's more correctly translated as chapters of fundamental principles. It's a minor tractate. It's the second to last one in the order of Nizikin, or damages, and it's the only tractate in the Talmud that doesn't deal in halacha or Jewish law. It traffics solely in ethical and moral principles. It begins as follows. Moshe received the Torah from Sinai and transmitted it to Yehoshua. Yehoshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, and the prophets handed it down to the men of the great assembly. They said three things. Be deliberate in judgment, raise up many disciples, and make a fence around the Torah. Now, the first two parts of the great assemblyman's admonition, is, it's rather straightforward. First, be deliberate or moderate in judgment, avoid the extremes. And second, propagate the teaching of the Torah, spread learning, make learning a popular normative act. But the third, make a fence around the Torah. What, what does that mean? I was not the first to make the connection between this concept and Robert Frost's mending wall. But I thought of these lines in particular. Before I built a wall, I'd asked to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. So when you mend a wall or erect a fence, besides maintaining the wall, you're making four additional statements. You deem something as being worthy of protection. You protect that which is being fenced in with a fence. You restrict access to that which is being fenced in with that fence. And you establish or entrench ownership of that which is being fenced in, as you, the fence builder, have a right to give or evoke access. It's your fence. So when it comes to the men of the Great Assembly, what they meant by making a fence around the Torah was arguably the following. The Torah is the most precious thing that the Jewish people have. It is their contract, their covenant with God. In it are spelled out the terms of the agreement, binding on both parties. It needs to be protected from textual corruption and other mischief. As such, fenced in, access to it is restricted. And the fencers in, the rabbis, are not only entrusted with both protecting the contents, but also its interpretation and dissemination. They make access possible, but also dictate the terms of access. But then I thought further about Mending Wall as the speaker in the poem, as he is mending the wall, questions the need for the wall. 
The speaker meets his neighbor each spring to mend that wall, but since there is no explicit purpose for the wall, there are no cows to be contained and whatnot, uh, which is why he asks what he's supposed to be walling in, or more like walling out, which, as he says, quote, was like to give offense. But in each instance, as the narrator you know, provides an argument and challenge to the need for the wall, the neighbor replies simply, good fences make good neighbors, as if this shibboleth was handed down to him like Torah from Sinai. The speaker concludes that his neighbor is, you know, he, quote, moves in darkness, and not because he walks under the shade of trees. So consider this frosty and condemnation in light of the following quote from Bava Metzia, folio page 33a. Our rabbis taught, they who occupy themselves with the Bible are but of indifferent merit, with Mishnah, are indeed meritorious, and are awarded for it, with Gemara, there can be nothing more meritorious, yet run always to the Mishnah more than to the Gemara. On the one hand, you have Torah as we said, protected by a fence around it, a text regarded as worthy of preservation and protection. But it's also a text whose opacity and terse prosody has perplexed readers for millennia, and thus is in dire need of some explanation. And on the other hand, you have the texts authored by the rabbis themselves. And as any author will tell you, you should read it, if not definitely buy it, maybe even seven copies of my book, End of the Jews, Radical Breaks, Remakes, and What Comes Next, because, quote, there can be nothing more meritorious. I'm just kidding about the seven copies. You should probably buy 10. Give it to your friends. It's a great uh, latke sap at Hanukkah time. This sounds on its face like the colorful Hebrew phrase, tzavot shalashirim, the troubles of the rich. It's like struggling to decide which car to drive today, the Aston Martin or the Bentley. Here you have the Tanakh, the Mishnah, the Talmud. Which one to study? Which one? Which one? But Bava Metzia sets up a clear hierarchy. Study Gemara, that is, the Aramaic portions of the Talmud, the heavy rabbinic gloss, with a good daily dose of Mishnah, and you are indeed meritorious. But if you only study Bible, meh. In fact, it'd be better if you stayed away from the fence. It has sharp, pointy bits. The great Oz has spoken. Oh, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Which gets us back in a very roundabout way to kid boiling and the fence, again. Some of the commandments have reasons. For example, we've had two so far in Exodus. Chapter 22, verse 26, the Torah explains why you have to return a cloak taken in pledge from a neighbor in a timely manner. It might be his only cloak, and he needs it. Or the classic prohibition of oppressing the refugee in chapter 23, verse 9. Again, you should be nice to refugees because you were refugees in Egypt. And it was a terrible experience. So why would you inflict that on someone else? But many commandments are just because, and according to the rabbis, they need protection. So if there is a ban on kid boiling, for whatever reason, we as God-fearing, covenant-bound individuals do not want to ever, ever, ever violate that commandment. But how to make sure? Easy. You expand each specific element of the offending mix into general categories and then prohibit any kind of contact between them. Thus, all meat, most broadly defined, even chicken, which is included in the meat group but not fish, cannot mingle with all dairy products, most broadly defined. That'll do it. So contrary to Danny Balint, the reason kashrut practice does not mix chicken and milk is not stupid. It's about the incomprehensible, Steve, not the idiotic. Yep, 
it might be perceived as a bit insulting to one's intelligence. What, we should, couldn't be trusted to keep a kid and its mother's milk separate? You have to go this far to make sure it didn't happen at all? Well, in a word, yes. Look, if a sinkhole opens up in my front yard, it's not enough for me to stand next to it and shout, hey everybody, don't fall into this sinkhole, and then go out and have a cup of coffee. It's not enough for me to update my Facebook with a similar warning or tweet it. It's also not enough for me to put up a sign saying, hey, watch out, there's a sinkhole. It's not enough for me to lay down a piece of plywood to cap the sinkhole. It's not enough for me to position maybe one or two or three of those orange cones with some yellow tape forming a perimeter around it. I might have to take even greater measures to prevent people from falling into the sinkhole. But why? Isn't all that I've just done enough? In a word, no. It's not enough for the same reason that we have regulations of all kinds. We have speed limits, we have building codes, we have antitrust legislation. Humans are faced with choices hundreds of thousands of times a day. And I can't guarantee that said humans will always be thinking about that sinkhole warning I tweeted yesterday as they amble down my street today. I can't feel secure that even my sign will be enough to ward off errant pedestrians. I need to take reasonable steps to make sure that the folks walking down my street are safe. I guess the keyword there is reasonable. So, I might just have to put up a fence. What's so incomprehensible about that? As always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store, or at Stitcher Smart Radio. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 24 on Exodus chapters 37 through 40. Y'all come back now, here. Yeah.